Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of Ancient Office Hours. This week's guest is the lovely Perrine Poiron, an Egyptologist and historian. Perrin was one of the ancient historians to work on the Assassin's Creed Origins Discovery Tour. She has the distinction of having written a majority of the information that was then narrated and used in the educational tour mode. We spoke about why she chose to focus her research on the cat goddess Bastet, why we should learn more modern languages when studying antiquity, learned some tips and tricks for archaeogaming with younger kids, and, of course, discussed her experience consulting on Assassin's Creed Origins. When we last spoke, she hadn't yet completed her doctorate, but I was delighted to hear that she has successfully defended her dissertation and earned her PhD. So, brava, Dr. Poiron. This episode also features our first poem reading in French, and I'm very excited about it. Anyway... Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining me this morning, bright and early. I just wanted to start out and give you the space to introduce yourself a bit and also just, just answer the biggest question that I think is on everyone's mind, which is how did you get into Egyptology and why did you get into Egyptology? So hi, thank uh, thank you for uh, having me here today. So my name is uh, Perrine Poiron. I'm uh, actually finishing my PhD in Egyptology uh, between uh, Sorbonne uh, University at pa- in Paris and uh, UCAM in Montreal. My main research is on the Bastet, the goddess Bastet. I will, I'm researching her place inside the protocol and all the official discourse during the 22nd dynasty. And I want to know if her has a prism of interest during the 22nd dynasty can help us to understand the identity of the Libyan king during this period, because we are, we always have in mind that during the third intermediate period, it's like stranger ruling Egypt, so Libyan, Nubian, and all the tribalism, and it's not 
Egyptian king. It's not the the traditional system since the nineties. This idea is really 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 strong in the the field with the the help of uh, Frederic Perodo, which is, who is a, a specialist in this uh, period. Uh, we are working to actually look further, not because their name are stranger, that it's meaning they are stranger because we have all the question of identity in our own society. When can we say that I am like a citizen of United States or I'm a Canadian, I, I'm a French. When your origins and your identity can cross together and what you are an Egyptian It's the same thing for ancient Egypt. And uh, actually, because uh, all the 22nd dynasty's king were called like Sheshank, Taklot, Ozarkon, uh, it's like it's not Egyptian names, so they are strangers. So it's not uh, Egyptian rules anymore. With the help of the goddess Bastet inside the protocol, I can help to identify that, well, actually, they know the tradition and they, they try to use this goddess to emphasize the, the Egyptian tradition inside the country. So it's what I'm working in. I will be uh, having my defense during the fall this year. So uh, hopefully I will done my paper at the end of the, at the end of June. And uh, how I fall in Egyptology. <laughs> I was 11 years old. So it's a long time process. In French, I was having a history classes on the Hebrew and Egyptian civilization. In my French classes, we were reading a book. The book was uh, written by Odile Wellers. In French, the title is Les Pierres de Sarcophage, so like the robber of the tombs, if I translate it like that. It was a young, it was a book for young children, but in French. Then my mom offered me my first adult book, uh, written by Pauline Gage, who is She's actually a Canadian. I learned it after that. The, the book is called in English because I, I just take it. It was called The, the House of Dreams. And the plot uh, takes place during Ramses III's uh, reign. And it's all the, you know, the harem plot, you know, when the, the concubine tried to kill the king and all the, how do you say, procès, you know, when uh, the, the trial, all the trial. Oh, yeah. So around the, the trial. Yeah, you know, there is a the papyrus de Turin, Turin mm. Papyrino Papyrus, who, which is all the result of the distrial, so all the condemnation, all the plot is... Uncovered? Then, yeah, all the plot is uh, all explained during uh, in, inside this papyrus, and the, the writer, writer creates uh, the story of the concubine since her childhood, and it's like it, it was an injection, you know, the, the three things all together just blow my mind and I was like oh I don't know what what I can do with it but I, I know that I want to work in this field because it's really impressive and uh, you know it's like food for dreams uh, in ancient Egypt it's like color sense texture yeah it's food for the brain <laughs> yeah I would agree with that and were you a cat person growing up? Is that where the love of Bastet came in? Or did you just kind of just love Bastet herself? Actually, I always I always have a cat at home, sometimes two or three. Now, uh, until like two, uh, three years ago, we had also a cat at, at my she unfortunately passed away but in the meantime my husband have a real big allergy it's not like you know you're sniffing but it's really attack her uh, the, how do you say pumon lungs 
the lungs actually he did he did some like lungs problem because of the cat so now we know that we can't have a cat anymore inside the house but hopefully i learned that there will be a vaccine for the people like now they are in a human trail and yeah uh, like maybe in two years there will be a vaccine to help the people who have allergy with the cats to have that not to have big problem with it so I'm really, really hoping that it will come soon because we want a cat at home again, you know? But yeah, actually for me, all the feline are really majestuous and uh, also, you know, it's the, the strength, the grace and what ancient Egyptians saw in them because lion, cats think that they are the same actually, you know, like the one who is really angered and dangerous and you cannot control it. But if you love it the good way, it will be really smooth and by your side and you can count on it because also the cat can help kill the snakes, the rats, all, you know, fascination actually. But I'm not like, uh, I didn't study bastard because I love the cats but really because I wanted to understand how ancient Egyptian politics show themselves to the world how the power stay in place during all the time because with China there are the two only civilization which keep the same political systems during a long time you know without changes so I was really interested in how they managed to do that so during my master's studies I I fell really in love with the discourse how the power talked to people and it starts with a, a discourse from the prime minister in Canada so you know that in Canada there is French and English as official language the prime minister was talking about something I don't remember the meaning of the presentation but he talked first in French and after that he talked in English but what he was saying for the same subject wasn't the same thing. And I just realized, well, it's not the first time that political chief has to address a population with different cultural language and how did they manage to do that? So I did my master on the Ptolemies, but only the first five Ptolemies. So I wanted to study how they show them themselves, the population, because they, they managed to be there for 300 years. So it's not like just 50 years from a change of regime. It's a long-term regime. So I wanted to know that. And this takes me to the third intermediate period because, again, they say, well, it's Libyan, it's Nubian, it's stranger, it's not political, traditional, pharaonical system. It's really a tribalism inside Egypt. So it's like a masquerade. They show uh, themselves as a pharaoh, but they are a stranger and they assume that they are a stranger. But what I want to understand is like, well, no, they are not stranger. They are there since like three, four hundred years. So there is assimilation, there is acculturation, there is miscegenation between the system. So yeah, that's what really triggers me. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's a really interesting MA topic that I wouldn't have necessarily thought was something that could have been turned into an MA topic. So like fantastic for you that you found this really cool thing and we're like, nobody did this. Okay, I'll do this. <laughs> so now it's out there in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm struggling to think back because, and it may be different because when I went to the French school of Chicago here, they were catering to American students, but 
all of the teachers were from either France or Francophone countries. And I remember taking classes, like history classes, I guess, that focused on the ancient world. And they were pretty good. Growing up in the French system, did you get to take any sort of mythology class or was it very general ancient history? So we're just going to do a bunch of ancient civilizations kind of put together and then that's what you get. Actually, uh, the French system is really rich in the term of cultural education with history. Because since the beginning of your scholarity, you have classes of history, you have classes of French, but you have also classes like it's not really defined, but you learn the great myth of civilization, you learn of the Greek myth, the Roman myth. That's true that it's really Eurocentric, obviously, but it really helps. And I have the privilege to grow up in the fresh French West India in Guadeloupe. So it's not in the continent. And I didn't learn the same history as my co-citizen in France. I didn't learn Versailles-Gétorix, uh, the, the Gaulois. I learned about the Arawak, the Caraïbes, and the slaves in the French West India. I learned also all the mythology from and all the, the, the history around them. So, you know, we have like uh, history like for like the Sukunyan, which are like, you know, small demons, actually. So all the superstition, like, for example, if you pass in the front of a cemetery, and you see a dog, you don't have to look the dog in the eyes because the dog is the animal of the devil. And if you look the the dog in the eye, it will kill you and take your soul. So you do not have to look of the dog, but why? Because the dog was the one sent by the, the master to find the slave when they want to run. The assimilation of the dog to the devil. And again, today, we saw some people hating the dog. And if you have a dog on the, how do you say, on the side of the road and you are driving, some people, I already saw it two times in my life, people just doing a move to kill the dog on the side of the road. I really have the privilege to be in the middle of all history, folklore, and for the class. Since primary school, secondary school, you have always history. And I have also Latin. With my classes of Latin, I learn about also other history, other culture. And that's what's really helped me to understand my own language because French come from also Latin language. So I became better in French. I understand more the ramification between culture, between connection. And in history, what really saddens me now is like we just are looking on the rupture between people and rupture between civilization or period, instead of looking to what connect them, what evolved from. It's really saddened me that we, we, we keep focusing on that because actually humanities and ancient history suffer from that because of course we are in rupture from them because we are 3,000 years later and we change. Of course, we do not recognize ourselves in ancient culture, but we have to be able to look at them, say what was wrong for our own point of view for now, but understand what was also human and strong from them yeah i think it's fantastic that you had latin i actually up. have 12 years of latin three of greek and now it's been like 
10 of ancient Egyptian language. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, okay. In addition to all these nice ancient languages you have in your back pocket to sort of use, were there any other requirements for modern foreign language that you needed to have German. other than English, of course? German. Mm, okay, German. In Egyptology, you have to know German because there is three really major school, if I can say, because I don't want to say country for a discipline because I think it's not the country who defined the specialization of a discipline, but like... Oh, yes. Yeah. So the, the basically, I know where you're going with this. There are three main languages that you need for this because those three countries are the ones who essentially excavated everything. And, yeah, and also... And they wrote all the stuff. So you need to Yeah, know. they are at the origin of the discipline, actually. Even after that, even if the discipline now, it's worldwide. And now I know that there is a Colombian researcher, a woman, who was selected from between 5,000 Egyptologists to work on the field in a subject in Spain. It's really awesome because we see the democratization and also the globalization of the specialization of the discipline. But that is true that the main corpus and the discipline was born in Europe. England, France, and Germany was the three who make it evolve, actually. If if you want to learn Egyptology, having some, you do not have to be fluid, but, you know, be able to read at last. Yeah, that makes sense. Egyptologists, as well as other classes, this just happen to be some of the most well-rounded people because you have all these both ancient and modern foreign languages. Yeah, and so. after that, they're asking, why it's taking you so long to be at school? <laughs> I don't know. Please help me. Why? <laughs> It's like, come on, you should have some kind of advantage. You already have French and English. Just speed <laughs> you along a little faster. Come on now. Yeah, but actually, you know, we see the limitation from a researcher who speaks actually only one language. They say that it's a systematization of a thing, but usually English people are really comfortable in their language. And I think that there, there is not the same effort for learning of other language. And sometimes that's why you find books on subject, but that were already done by other and well done. But you find it now like a new topic or a new subject in English. And so, well, it's not new. Somebody else did it before, but you did not see it because you do not speak the tongue. And actually, we have the problem with the Russia because uh, now Russian Egyptology is really strong. Russian people visit a lot Egypt. It's uh, really a, a population who really, really are attracted by Egypt as we think. But also the researchers are growing uh, massively in Russia, but they speak and write in Russia. So we cannot be able to read what they are doing, but they are doing stuff. That is really difficult because it's posing the question that do we have to choose a common tongue in the research for it to be international and understood by all. It's the same thing for Chinese and uh, Japanese because uh, we have, I'm working at the Hipposter Hall project. It's a project, a joint project between Montreal and the University of Memphis in, in the States. Since five years before, we are having a collaboration 
with a Chinese university. So sometimes we have Chinese students and uh, Chinese teacher who are coming on the field with us. It's really awesome. It's really great because they are used to antiquities, but in a different way. And they see the, the, the antique and the archaeology differently than us. And so it's really enrich our experience of our work. But it's the same thing when they are publishing or writing something, usually they are writing in their own language and that's really great. But we are not able to read it. And more importantly, Egyptian cannot read Russia, Japanese, Chinese, French, Spanish, German, English, but it's their history. So it, we should be able to also give them back their history by trying to make them understand using the good language for them to understand. So that's why since like five, eight years ago, the Ministry of Antiquities in Egypt is asking to always having a resume in Arabic. Some institutions like French Institute in Cairo are starting to translate the book and research in Arabic to help the, the Egyptian people to be able to learn and work in their own history field, you know. It's a quite rich and complicated area, the, the language that we use for research that we have to know because, yeah, I think that at, on the long run, we should be able to have a common language to make it accessible for everyone but we do not have to forget Egyptian in the choose of this language you know it's a really interesting issue that you bring up because in terms of languages that are most widely spoken and most widely able to be understood I would say right now it's probably English because it just seems to be the language of the world that everyone wants to know and speak but it is really interesting because these are Egyptian people this is their history we have an entire discipline built off of other people coming in and studying it and mm -hmm. doing all that so I have heard the argument for trying to make the language of Egyptology Arabic. And maybe I'm showing my age here by being on the younger end of people coming up and learning about the discipline. But when I first heard about Egyptology, I automatically assumed that I would need to learn Egyptian Arabic or standard Arabic yeah, as one of the many languages. Yeah. And then I was told that you can, but you don't really need it. I was just told oh, but French and German would be much more useful. You can use it if you want to go speak in Egypt, but they were like, you won't need it otherwise. Yeah, actually, the German, French, English is necessary for the research purpose. But if you want to go on the field, you need to know a minimum. For me, I'm really, really bad. Actually, I assume it. I know the, how to talk with the workers, say, well, I need something. Uh, can you please put the light more higher or lower or on the left, on the right? I, I can say, can I have some water? <laughs> you know, like really, really the basics. All my director or all the field director know how to speak Arabic because the field are not like just American field, Spanish field, French field. It's always French, Egypto-French, Egypto-Americano, Egypto-Spain. So you always have to have Egyptian people on your team. You have the inspector. You need to do the formation for young inspectors. So it's like a teaching to the new generation of intellect Egyptian intellectual and researcher. You need to be able to speak Arabic because even if the people in Egypt that's really impressive uh, know many languages for example if you go to the souk at Luxor people on the souk that do not go to school they can speak to you 
in Russia, Chinese, French, Spanish, Portuguese. They know the main language to speak and say, I want to sell you something. They know how to talk to you and sell their stuff to you in many, many, many different languages without being to school. The least that we can do is talk to them in their own language, you know. It's really, really, really difficult. But of course, Arabic, my teacher tell me that I should learn Arabic when I was at my last year of master. Because now, like, the thing will be serious. You know, I will be on the field where we have to research. And so now it's a need. You need to be able. But before that, when you do, you're doing your bachelor, of course, they will say, yeah, you should learn French, Spanish, German before. That's sad, but that's the reality of the thing. Yeah, hopefully we can change that in the next generation. I don't even, right. Something yeah. years, I don't know how long <laughs> yeah. it'll take, but, but hopefully it'll change and then we won't have quite as glaring of an issue. But yeah, it, it's sad, but it is so true because you can't get anywhere without these main languages. And it's yeah frustrating, very frustrating. Okay, I guess it's okay if you don't have an answer right now. But ideally, once you finish your PhD, what would you like to do? do for a career do you want to actually go into academia proper or with your experience working with ubisoft and all that do you have any interest in more public scholarship opportunities actually it's a really rich and complex question because i know what i want to do in my life i knew since i was 11 years old like i told you at the beginning of the meeting but at first, I wanted to be like my teachers at university, so really the academia field. So I want to teach students and I want to go on the field. I want to do research. While I was doing my master and after that my PhD, I had the opportunity to open my eyes to other experience. Like I work for Ubisoft for, of course, Assassin's Creed, but I also work for a video game that wasn't before the launch because uh, there was like, you know, the switch between the PS3 and the PS4. And uh, I think that other platform of video game was changing, the technology was, was changing. So we stopped the production of the game. So so in 2011, 2012, I worked with Ubisoft for a video game which takes place during Akhenaten's reign. So I did a lot of research, I organized a trip for the other production team to go to, to Egypt with a colleague of mine, an Egyptologist, who has a guide. So they really see Egypt as we specialists see Egypt and not tourists because there is different vision of Egypt, you know. And after that, I was called for the film X-Men Apocalypse. I coached Oscar Isaac when he was talking uh, ancient Egyptian tongue. So we write his dialogue, we coach his pronunciation. So I, I work on the set and from the set, I was called by Ubisoft to help them build all the audio environment of the Ubisoft Assassin's Creed Origins game. And from this, I was called to help them to just be sure because it was at the end of the production of the, the game. So it was like the last year of the production. So all the main stuff were, were already done. But there was still some stuff to do, do some translation, all the text, you know, in the background of the Assassin's Creed origin, I wrote it myself. So all the credit of the assassin, I wrote it in, in ancient Egyptian. So it was really difficult because transcription, when we say translation is Trajan, because you cannot translate really without changing some stuff in the text and translate 
modern concept in ancient Egyptian, there is not always the same concept. When you say, I want to kill somebody, as an example, in ancient Egyptian language, you have like maybe, maybe 10 or 12 words to say kill somebody because you can kill it by an arrow, by a knife, by drowning, by, you know, each word is... <laughs> <laughs> it's really specific so when you say i want to kill some stuff yeah but how because i need to know the how to to show you that the word you know so it was really really, really difficult and after that uh, i worked with them for the production of the discovery tour i was in charge of all the specialists called to write the text the research text for the discovery tour i wrote like maybe 50 myself you know on 70 topics it was really difficult because we wrote like research from 10 12 pages but they had to cut it to fit like 300 words 3000 words 5000 words max you know because the tour should be running like 2 5 minutes they had to be really shortened it was really really difficult because we wanted them to be really precise but you cannot be precise when you want to be concise you know it doesn't work well with this experience i was called by, by the montreal museum of fine art in 2019 to help them build the family space for the exhibition ancient mummies ancient life from the british museum i organized myself to have the discovery tour available for the visitors because they can complete their experimentation of ancient egypt after the exhibition with that and i really love the experience working in the museum and do the mediation to a younger or wider audience you know doing some vulgarization i discovered that i love to be able to do research but i really love also to communicate and explain to others. I think like a good researcher is also a good communicator. Sometimes it's what is really lacking. It's missing because you have really, really interesting, intelligent people, researchers doing some stuff so important, but they are so in their head and so in their small world that they are not able to explain why they are there. And actually, if I do the comparison between, for example, Assyriology and Egyptology, what helps Egyptologists and the discipline of Egyptology is that ancient Egypt is really fascinating for all the culture and civilization around the world. Everyone wants to know why so much gold and all the mummies and all the pyramids because there is a lot of fascination and dream around ancient Egypt and it's a, a country when you can go visit. You cannot go wherever you want in the in Iraq, Iran, Syria. It's really difficult. Is even Israel, and and you cannot cross the frontier from in each. If if for example, I want to go to Israel, and after that, I want to go into Jordania. I cannot because I went to Israel before. So you know, it's really complicated. Even the diplomatic around those countries. The Assyriologists are really in their niche. It's really difficult. We cannot go as a common people visit as much as, as we want and they cannot communicate because they are too much in their head and too much in their stuff so it's not appealing for the countries to finance and give money to help to do the research uh, luckily for us in egyptology we we can have financial help from the, the government to help us because it's really the word in French will be for me, like talking about ancient Egypt is really founder, you know, it's like people will buy it. 
they want to go. You have an exhibition on ancient Egypt. It's millions of people who are coming there. It's appealing. I think that specialists should be able to communicate. And what I discover with my my work experience is that it's really rich to be able to talk about your field studies to colleagues, to confront your idea, to change the way we saw his story and the way we wrote his story because we are at the origin of what would be said about this period of history. It's really passionating and uh, you know when you have a work sometimes you say what do you want to achieve and I think I think to be able to change the way we see history and we do history it's really extraordinary but the way we communicate communicate history is also really 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 important because now more than ever we are the more connected worldwide people in the world and we have access to all the information but we do not teach the young generation to know what to do with all this information it's like a mirror we it's a masquerade we are thinking that we know the stuff that we have access for all the stuff and people should be able to know the stuff, but we are not educating them to know how to learn from all the stuff that there are around there. And history is cut from the programs because it's not humanities, actually, I should say, instead of history. It's cut from the program because it's not giving to the institution enough money. And people are not going in humanities because what will you do with that after that? You cannot, you can just do teaching if you do not want to teach. What will you do with that? So we are trying to say to the, the kid, yeah, you should be lawyer, doctors, engineers and uh, stuff like that. But learning and understand how ancient people think and build themselves society it's really the foundation of society in itself and if we are not able to know the difference between argumentation and indoctrination and we need humanities to be able to see the difference because it's if you are just playing with emotion of people and make them react based on the emotion uh, in front of a situation and sometimes really 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 it's injustice you need to have a reaction but if it's not thinking as a reaction because it's not just an emotion it's an under treatment it's, it's it's an under treatment it's not discussion and put the fact together and understand all the nuance that there is around them and i think that it's the biggest danger that the young generation are facing it's not to be able to react from how the government talk to us and what they want us to know and humanities are it are there for that yeah they are really vital mm-hmm. and having this experience being called by Ubisoft and and working on something that you may not have thought about was possible for someone who wanted to go into academia. Do you see more potential almost for for more positions like that to open up? I mean, is this something that say you have a young academic who gets their PhD and then they say, I don't want to go into academia because I do prefer public scholarship. I do prefer trying to educate the public in a really fun way way mixing fun and academia together mm-hmm. is there going to be a greater demand for historians to work on 
historical games or historical films? Actually, with the field of, uh, we were talking about that at the beginning of our meeting before the, the recording, but uh, you know, all the new field of archaeo gaming, I think will open some doors. I don't know exactly the proportion that it will take in the future, but now I know that we have in French a sentence saying, toutes les routes mènent à Rome, every world put take you to one place, actually. When you want to do Egyptology, for example, or history in the larger way, I think you do not have to precisely do history. You should do some history, but if you are curious enough, you can learn some stuff by yourself and still be able to learn all your life, but you can come in the field because you are a scientist. As an example, we need bioarchaeologists, we need uh, engineers to understand how the cities or how the temple or how the, the landscape was organized and how and why it was organized this way. They will be able to explain to us some stuff that us as historians or philologists or epigraphists will are not able to understand because we are not engineers. We are not able to understand all the physical implication that there is more than understand the people that we live in specific ways. Uh, the, all the cemeteries in ancient Greek were outside the town, not inside. The, the, there is a meaning for the, the Catholics people. It's near the church. You know, the, we do this, the thing because there is a reason, the urbanism and I think there is many, many possibilities to come to Egyptology. You do not have to be specifically an Egyptologist to do Egyptology. You need to try to build your, your learning and your knowledge on this field, but you can come from another field. We are so brainwashed that you have to go to science or you have to go to humanities and, you know, put people in some books and you have to stay in that box. But actually, when we are able to cross the discipline, it's where you can have a beautiful fireworks of idea and understanding, you know. So I think what is really giving me some hope for the future is that the youngest generation will be able to say, well, at first you say we should specialize and go where the golden road to be able to have a beautiful life. But now we know that you can be much because for our grandparents' generation, you have the same situation that your own father before you. After that, you can have learning experience and change work. And after that, it was like, yeah, you find a work, you have a formation in that, and you have to be and keep your life, all your life in this way. And now life is really, really long. You have many opportunities and you can be many things. And during the modern period, all the philosophers were scientists, artists, writers. So why now a mathematician should just be a mathematician and not an historian? And the same way, reverse. Why an historian just is an historian and not a physician? I think that there will be changing, but I'm not able to say how the change will take place. But I think that we, our generation, should be the one to say, well, stop. We, we should stop and we should try to give the information to the people, to be able to teach to the people because it's really an emotion, in an emotional way. And 
the transformation of the fact, you know, to put it, uh, to be fit in what your emotion is, you know, and they are not conscious that they are doing this. That's what really, really, really saddens me and also scares me because people really genuinely feel that they are in the truth, but there is no truth in history. There is fact. Yeah, it's very interdisciplinary. I think you're totally, you're spot on in that you shouldn't have to be just what you go to school for. You shouldn't be defined by, okay, this is, this is what I do. So this is all I'm going to do. And I think there is room to sort of cross boundaries and say, okay, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. If you're really talented, then you can do a third thing too. So I think there's room to grow there. Definitely. But I want to turn a little bit to just a slightly fun question, hopefully for you, which is, did you have a favorite part of from your work on the discovery tour for Assassin's Creed Origins? And along with your favorite thing, was there something that you wish you could have put in or done or worked on that you didn't get to? Actually, I love the feeling of immersion in the Discovery Tour because I really amazed by the technologies and what they are able to do now as environment, the light, you know, when you are, you're entering, for example, a pyramid and you have all the dark and all the squishy space, you know, and when you go out, your, your, your sight is really aveugly in français, like you cannot Blinding. see. Yeah, you're blending and it's real. It's really the feeling that you have when you go out a tomb. Under a tomb, it's really dark. It's really squishy. You, you, you do not have much space. And when you go out and you feel the hotness of the desert and the, the light, and it's really that I feel what I feel when I'm in Egypt. And the, I love the fact that all the landscape also looks like Egypt. It's the, the reality from that, I really love that. And from the content in itself, I think that what I love was the fact that I was able to uh, actualize uh, the research for the pyramids, how they built it and who built it from the research from Pierre Talet, which uh, is uh, who is an Egyptologist, uh, at the, he's the head of uh, the Sorbonne uh, Egyptology at Paris. And uh, with his team, uh, they found the papyrus of Wadi al-Jaf. I don't know if you you know that, that they found the oldest papyrus from the, the pyramid era. And they, they know that there are teams of builders who were traveling between the Red Sea and the Giza Plateau. We, we know we have all the daily for 30 days. We have their daily journal. So we know who were there and what they did and at what time was the pose. And uh, I was really, really happy to be able to give to the Discovery Tour the possibility to be really actual, actualized in the field, you know, what we are doing now what we know now to be able to put some nuance also for some case and uh, I was really uh, proud for that and what really missed me during this process was to be able to be a part of uh, the choose of, of the tool when they built it when you they put our text inside the the environment that they, they do it themselves so we didn't to choose if the, the the personage can go on the left or on the right or on this house instead of this house or i, I really wish i was part of this because it's really awesome how they do the, they do it actually we didn't did not have the time 
to to do that so how's we say in uh, in arabic malish like <laughs> oh that's too bad yeah i well well i'm curious now that you mentioned the pyramid stuff was it you or somebody else who wrote the houdin stuff i wrote the the stuff from for the pyramid Ah, okay. it's fresh on my mind because I'm making Archeo gaming videos. I'm currently working on one using Origins. This will be my first Origins one, and I really wanted to get the pyramids in there. So I recently just did all of the Pyramids of Giza plateau tours. And so all the information is fresh and I kind of remember all of them and thinking, oh, that's really cool. Oh, I like that one and that one too. <laughs> it's really fun to know that all the information, all the text that I'm seeing, that was you. Yeah. Is, is it a really fun thing that you can impress friends with? Hey, did you know? Did you play that? That was me. Or or is it something oh, you're like, actually, no, no, yeah, I'll just uh, I'm really shy about that. And I don't, when I'm with my colleagues or friends uh, in the same field, I try not to show off because work in how field outside academia, it's really difficult or you know, it's like a kind of pretentious to say, yeah, I did that. I did that. Look at me. I did that. No, with my friends and colleagues, I have, I think it's really important to keep the humility because I know how hard it is to have the chance to work. So that's why it's really difficult to do fashion because uh, even if you are having like 15 years of university, you're not sure that you will have a job at the end of the game. So that's really sad because you are investing money and time and part of your life inside it without guarantee. And if I want to do dentist or lawyer or doctor, I know that I will have a, a job at the end. That's difficult because people do not want to do it even if they are passionate, the number of people who say, oh, you are doing this. Oh, I love this period so much. I wanted to do this job, but I do. And of course, this person do much, much more money than me. Essentially, you don't like to publicize your work with Ubisoft because it's probably best that if people discover it, that's cool. But otherwise... Actually, with the, my friends or people that are not in the field, when they talk about that and say, well, or they, they ask what I do and that I explain when I work for this or for that, they are amazed and I'm willing to talk about it if they ask me to. But with, with my colleagues, I'm more discreet. But with uh, people at large or with my friend, sometimes I do not have the time to, to say anything. I come in a place and my friend already told their friend that I done something, you know, and I, I'm already, oh, you're the one who worked with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's me, <laughs> guilty, you know. <laughs> I love it. I just would think it's so fun and exciting. Yeah, that just sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And actually, it was really an amazing experience in my life because from the Discovery Tour, I worked with Ubisoft and Google for the Discovery uh, Hieroglyphic Initiative 
project. Now it's Fabricius because it was bought by Google two years ago. So now you can play with hieroglyph uh, on the Fabricius we website. You can go and see. You can put a picture of uh, a text in Egyptian and they do a facsimile. It's an automata, uh, automatic thing. So I work like for two years and a half with them. I travel. I go to. I went to Barcelona, to London, to Birmingham. Uh, uh, so we went there to present the project of, you know, using uh, interface, uh, AE for the translation of hieroglyph. So this is the, the project that uh, I work with them. And really, it was awesome. It was amazing. I learned so much from this experience. And that's why now I know that I'm really, really able to teach students, but also to teach people in really other field and to communicate for children or the, the public uh, information because with my experience in the museum and the work on collection, because uh, also from the, the exhibition Mommy, I also had the mandate to work on a private collection of the Fine Art, uh, the Montreal Museum of Fine Art. I did all the cartels and all the scenography of the Egyptian collection. So it was really really rich and awesome as an experience. I really love and I I never think that I was able to work in a museum. I never thought about museum before. So I was thinking about the field teaching in universities, but never museum, never in conference for the public or in school because I also done some, some days in primary school and secondary school with the discovery tour. So it was really awesome because with the kids show, show them and explain to them, answer to the, their question after doing a tour or it's really, really nice to do that also. And how do you find the response to the tour from younger kids? Because when I'm going through it, I think it's great and I think it's easy to understand, but I also know that some of the text is written for probably college age kids. And so it's one of the things that I'm finding a little difficult, which is taking the information that you've worked so hard to craft and put in and then trying to make it a bit easier for younger kids who don't understand all the complex language. Do you see maybe, do you wish almost that there was a, a kid's version of the tour that could be made in the future? Or is this something that you wouldn't use for young kids? But, uh, it could, but... You know, younger children, when they learn about ancient Egypt, they just want to have simple answer to simple question. What is a pyramid? What is its purpose? What are the gods? What are their stories? Why is their stories? What they eat? How they play? I think we should forget to tell the same thing to children, teenagers, young adults, and public. It's not the same level, and it's not the same interest. As an example, next week, I will go to the kindergarten where my uh, little daughter uh, is. There is a girl in the, her group who comes from Iran, and uh, she came two weeks ago with a book about uh, a small personage. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the, this book. It's called Monsieur, Madame. It's like uh, Mrs. and Mr., you know? Ah, yes, uh, yes. Mrs. Beautiful or Mr. Angry or, you know, going in Egypt, see the pyramid. And children was 
asking, what is a pyramid? Oh, it's big. Why? And the little girl said, well, near Iran, uh, there is other culture, you know, the, the ziggurat and the temple and, uh, and stuff like that. And there is a, a Mexican children also in the group. Also in my culture, in my, there is pyramids and there is stuff like that. So they were curious. And I said, well, we can do like maybe a theme when how to be together with the pyramid thing because always the meaning is to join the sun you know because the sun is what we all have quality i will be in her group maybe next week wednesday and i will read a myth and just tell a story and you do not they do not need much than that we have to to select what we want to say to them and when i go to primary school with the discovery tour I let the children play, so move the, the avatar, and they love to go on the boat, for example, and see around and say, wow, I see the crocodile, I see the fish, how oh, I can go there, and uh, while they are going through the tour, I explain, oh, you see what you see there? It's a shadow. We can take water with that. Just a small information, you know, there and there, and it's enough, and they love that. But with teenagers... It's different. I ask them, what do you want to look? What do you want to see? Do you want to go to the fortress, the Roman fortress? Do you want to go in the temple? Do you want to see the mummification? What do you want to do? And with the interest of the, the teenagers, we go, we do the tour. And after that, I answer their question. And sometimes it's really specific question. And with academics and students at university, another level. We should be able, actually, we, we, I think students need to have class to how communicate the same information to different level. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And I think a lot of us try to think too hard into what kids want when they really do yeah. want very simple questions. But that's also something that a lot of us youngins over here w without kids would never think about until maybe we do have them. Because I noticed myself sitting here theorizing, okay, so what do I teach the fourth grader today? How do I transmit complex information when yeah. you're right, she's, you know, a kid would probably just be like, okay, what is it? What does it do? Why is it? Yeah. And what do you know? Actually, when I teach to you, to teenager or children, I always start by asking, what do you know about this civilization? Or if I tell you this word, what it means to you? What do you know about it? And I start my classes from that. That's a really good and a really smart way of doing things because that way you're not going to sort of infantilize, treat them like they don't know anything. And it's a really customizable approach to it, which I Yeah, and really actually appreciate. sometimes when they know, for example, if I talk about mommy, when uh, they say, what do you know about mommies? And sometimes some of them will, ask, will talk about mommies in movies, mommies in books, mommies in uh, Inca civilization, mommies in Chinese civilization, mommies in ancient Egypt. But from there, I will say, well, what do you know? And why there is mommies in there? Is it the same way? Do, do you think it's the same meaning there than there? Why it's different? And from their observation and their reflection, you can jump and after that, take them back where you want them to go. Yeah. Oh, that makes total sense to me.
this just popped into my mind. As an Egyptologist, you obviously have to command the ancient language, the hieroglyphs, and having a hand in trying to relay information in this way. The language component of the game, I noticed. I have an Egyptologist friend who I speak to, and um, he's pointed out to me that a lot of it is... So the writing may be accurate, but in the game... Apparently, the spoken language isn't saying the same thing. Oh, the spoken language. The spoken language I heard is completely different. I, I can explain why it's different for the spoken language because all the audio environment, they did a lexic. Actually, Ubisoft did the choice to mix ancient Greek language, Ptolemaic language, ancient Egyptian language, Arabic language, all in the same. So they did like a big lexic for actually sometimes the word can, the word you are in a market and somebody talk to another person and you're, you're having the impression that they're having a discussion, but actually the guy is saying banana or apple or, you know, it's not, the objective was not to the people inside the game say real stuff but to have the illusion of the audio environment, like, you know, the, all the bubbling the, the around you. And I know that it's Lorenzo Medini, who, with, who is researcher, uh, an Egyptologist and uh, specialist of the Ptolemaic language, who did the lexic from the Ptolemaic language, Latin, Greek, there was Elenis who worked on that, me, I work on Egyptian vocabulary. So they did really a mix of it. It's normal that it's not making sense because the objective of the producer was not to have really accurate uh, discussion between people, but to have the illusion of an environment, an ancient environment around us. That is why. Okay. Although, do you think that maybe in the future, games like this, though, could potentially be used to help with learning a real ancient language? Of course. Of course. Actually, I'm surprised that for the Odyssey, they did not do it because actually we missed time to do it in ancient, for the, the Origins AC. But when you see that it lasts only seven days before gamers who have no knowledge of hieroglyphs to translate the credo uh, in hieroglyphs. Yeah, of course, the game could be a, a platform to learn ancient language or modern language. What, why not? I think video games is really a medium, a perfect medium for learning, but we have to do it wisely. And also why the Discovery Tool is really appealing is because of the franchise. If it was a Discovery Tool for a no known game, the impact will not uh, the same, you know. This impact is really strong because it's a, a video game known from the teenagers and they know that they are not able to game because they are too young and now they can play inside it and they can show off in classrooms say, well, I do Assassin's Creed Origins, but that's coffee too, but I do Assassin's Creed Origins, you know, it's really, uh, it's hot, you know, it's like uh, you, you're hot to do that. I think that the marketing and the, where you want to put the knowledge in which game, it's really important because if it's a video game lambda that nobody knows, the impact will not be the same than if you take a bestseller and do something like that. 
Yeah, I agree. And it's a, it's kind of a sad reality if you think about it, because anyone should be able to just create a really cool game set in the past and people should love it. But you're right. It Half of the reason it probably got the draw it did is because it is, boom, attached to a big franchise that people yeah. know and people love. But of course, if a teacher uses video game, whichever video game it is in the classroom, children will love it. That's true, because it's it's not hard to wow children when you have any kind of technology or video game. They're like, yeah, wow, this exactly. is so cool. And now if we had a VR inside classroom too, it would be, I think. I yeah. would love that. And I personally really would love a VR discovery tour for both Origins and Odyssey because I just uh, want to walk really around. Great. But I think that they are working on something. I'm not selling the, the anything, but uh, I think they really are working on something. Somebody, hopefully, if you're doing it, please know you're going to make a lot of people happy. Yeah. Okay, I have to ask this question because it'll make a friend of mine very, very happy because I know how much it gets on his nerves. If you're listening, you know exactly who yeah. I'm talking, who you are. <laughs> But one thing in Origins that is very noticeable, it looks great, but it's not historically accurate. The mangoes, because Egypt at that time did not have mangoes in it. Can you talk about why the mangoes were included in the game? Is it just, was it like a color palette choice or was it just trying to put something else in the game to, I don't know, to stand in for the trend Mango. market. Yeah, mm. but mangoes as strawberry, as lemon, as kakade are really famous in modern Egypt. So you cannot go to Egypt and do not have a mango juice. It's like you are drinking a mango. It's, uh, it's really good and tasty. And Oh, I missed it. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I think I really have no clue of why they did that because I wasn't there for this particular choice. But in my mind, there is a lot of clin d'oeil, as we say in French, you know, like uh, maybe it's because, first of all, it's beautiful, it's good, it's known worldwide. They is one of the most popular fruits in Egypt. So okay, so it's definitely not historically accurate, but it may just be like a little nod to modern Egypt. Like, okay, yeah. well, it obviously wasn't there. But hey, modern Egypt, so we'll put it here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey, I've just always wondered because all the research I've ever done said that, yeah, mangoes did not make their way to Egypt until like the medieval period. So I'm just yeah. like, oh, it's a bit of a strange choice. I was happy to see them because I love the color that it adds to the game because they're beautiful, but definitely not the most historically accurate. But thank you for answering that. Yeah, but I keep in mind that this is a game and they use history as, as their playground, you know. So the, the accuracy of the history and, and the environment, it's not the main goal. It's to fill the void from history with the game, you know. So they have liberties and they took them. And sometimes we said like, why did you do that? And they said, well, it's a game. Okay, damn. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no argument. <laughs> it's a game. True. <laughs> I mean, 
they don't bother me that much. It's a small detail in the end, but yeah. I, for this particular person, it bothers him so much. <laughs> he can't do a stream or look at the game without going, the mangoes, the you mangoes. You should kill the mango when you see it. <laughs> yeah, he, I think if he could, he would take arrows and he would try to shoot the mango <laughs> merchant and say, stop, get out of here. Why are you here? Go away. <laughs> Come back in medieval times. <laughs> So this has been such a fun discussion and and I want to leave it on that really fun note. So at the end of each podcast, I ask if each guest will read the Percy Shelley version of the poem Ozymandias. And this is something new that I'm trying, which is asking people to read the poem in foreign languages, because I up till now I've basically just had people reading it in English, which is great and which is fine, but I'm, I'm very excited to get this sort of international flavor uh, <laughs> into the podcast. So I'm so excited that you've agreed to read it in French. So yeah. you'll hear a, a, the poem read in a lovely foreign language. So after reading the poem, if you could just give us your thoughts on, you know, what does this poem mean to you? It, imagery is so strong. It evokes a billion feelings and just, you know, what are the messages you take from it and all that good stuff? Okay. I would try to have a good answer for that. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's go in French. Rosimandias. J'ai rencontré un voyageur de retour d'une terre antique qui m'a dit 
Deux immenses jambes de pierre dépourvues de buste se dressent dans le désert. Près d'elle, sur le sable, à moitié enfoui, gît un visage brisé dont le sourcil froncé, la lèvre plissée et le rictus de froide autorité disent que son sculpteur sut lire les passions, qui, gravées sur ses objets sans vie, survivent encore à la main qui les imita et au cœur qui les nourrit. Et sur le piédestal, il y a ces mots. « Mon nom est Ozymandias, roi des rois. Voyez mon œuvre, ô puissant et désespéré. » À côté, rien ne demeure. Autour des ruines de cette colossale épave, infinie et nue, les sables monotones et solitaires s'étendent au loin. The end. <rire> beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> well, to answer your question, I think that this poem is the exact metaphor of what could happen to humanities and history. Whichever civilization, whichever era, period, time, memory is something that you can forget. And if you do not take the time to tell the story, to look behind the story, You will forget it. And after that, if somebody come back and look at it and he do not have the repair, you know, born the markers to understand what he's having under his eyes. And uh, that's really make me think about the first time a missionary look on the frontier stella of Akhenaten. You know, the, the stella when you have the king with a, a big belly and the the hand on the skies and uh, praying Aten, sun god, and he draw a representation of what he saw. But what he saw with what he know and what we see now today with what we know is two different things. So we really have with this the example of what we, we are missing when, when we forget, when we don't know, when we don't have all the complete information in our education. So this poem for me, is a reminding because yes, starting from scratch is freeing because you have all the possibility, all the power to do whatever you want and it could be better than before. But missing, missing what there is under the sand can make fall off all what you are trying to build. You, you need to know what is under your feet to, to go up, you know. For me, it's a beautiful metaphor. And Does it change how you interpret this poem as an Egyptologist? Does it make you think harder or is it easier for you knowing it's Ramesses II, arguably, arguably the greatest pharaoh um, in Egyptian history? Or does it not really factor into how you analyze it? I think it could bias me, meaning that, yeah, it could influence me, but I'm really privileged because I have a, a beautiful education, the knowledge of other civilization and history always in a larger way are, is really in my way of life and how I was raised by my parents. So I, I think that my knowledge in uh, literature in, in helped me to understand and have an image. But of course, having something who take place in ancient Egypt is more appealing for me and uh, it's easier for sure. Great. I loved your analysis. And I will say I read this poem in either high school or 
college. I can't remember, but all I know is it's been my favorite poem for many, many years now. It's because it's so beautifully crafted. It's because it talks of this elegant decay surrounding Egypt, and it talks about the political power and, and how sort of fleeting right. it is and hubris and all that. And the strength also because having a castle broken, how can we imagine having, it's like Goliath and David. Yeah. broke. So we can broke. If it breaks, we can. So be aware, you know. Yeah. For all those reasons, it's incredible. Yeah. And even just thinking about what this means to us. And so the last question that I ask every single guest on the podcast is, if we think about our culture, our society today, is there a modern Ozymandias? You know, is there something in our culture that we think is the greatest thing ever that we think will last for 2,000 years? And yet in 2,000 years, is anyone really going to remember it? Or are we just going to look back and say, oh, well, that was kind of a stupid idea? Yeah, freedom. Okay. Like as an ideology or as a... Yeah, freedom. As freedom of mind, freedom of speech, freedom of learning. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. I can vibe with that. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. But I'm like, the implications of what that would mean are so vast. I can't even like contemplate that. Oh, that's incredible. I love that answer. <laughs> I love that answer because it's going to have me thinking about what this means for the rest of my day, if not. Oh. <laughs> so thank you for Free that. Money, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> but it was such a pleasure to really have you on today. And it's just so amazing that you were able to cut some time out of your day and, and come talk to me. So what I will leave you and my audience with is hopefully impressing you a little with with my French over here. So I will say un grand merci beaucoup de m'avoir rejoint aujourd'hui et euh, merci, merci. Merci. <laughs> C'est un vrai plaisir. <laughs> Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.